Sweetheart. Sweetheart. All you need to do is to think about our life when we are out of this place. Our life? Yes, my love. Can we really do that? Hello, this is Gina, and welcome to the latest episode of Resisting Gilead. So today we're going to be talking about Season 3, Episode 12, which is titled Sacrifice. It's really hard to believe that after this, we just have one more episode left. And so before I dive into episode 12, I would love for just a call out to you guys to send any feedback or predictions for the season finale that you might have to me at resistinggilead at gmail.com. I would just love to hear everyone's thoughts about how they think this is going to shake out at the end because we're in a very kind of critical place right now. So yes, I would love more feedback. So You know, diving in here, before we get started on anything regarding the specifics of the episode, I really want to give a call out to the actress Julie Dretzen, who plays Eleanor. She is just so good. I really hope that she gets some type of nod or nomination, either, you know, from the Emmys next year or the Golden Globes. Um, I mean, both she and Bradley Whitford have just been incredible additions to this cast. And um, I really hope that she gets recognized for the work she did on this show, because I just think she portrays probably one of the more real reactions of what might happen to a wife um, who is in a position where her husband helped create Gilead. and, And, you know, she's even if she wasn't so fragile, I just think that she has been a tremendous, tremendous force on this show this year. And just so great to have June play off of it well. So getting into it, you know, we, we start off with that kind of crazy scene where June thinks they're coming to get her. She's got the gun ready. And it really is only Eleanor. And Eleanor's like, you might want to leave that there. You know, just kind of uh, some very light uh, comic relief. But, um, you know, the look of freedom on June's face after she finds out that the Waterfords have been captured uh, by the Americans and Canadian government is just tremendous. And we see it a couple of times. The first time we see it is when she's in that chair and she just kind of like puts her head in her hands and is laughing and sits back and just looks up at the ceiling and... I feel like that's the first time we've ever seen her look so relaxed on this show until we see her walking to the market. I mean, it is like she is a brand new woman. She just looks so at peace um, in a way. And, And maybe we have seen this expression from her before. I'm trying to think, you know, maybe like certain times when she was with Nick. But I just feel like this is the first time we've seen her looking in such a good state of mind, um, which hasn't been a lot this season. You know, why don't we just be truthful about that? So she gets to the grocery store and 
she has a couple of interactions with folks. The first person is Alma and, you know, Alma, we really want to see her get her son out, who very sadly probably doesn't even know who she really is because it sounds like he was taken from her when he was a baby. But he's in Amherst. And so I used to live in Massachusetts, uh, both in Boston, where most of this is taking place. And then um, I also lived about 20 minutes from Amherst. I went to school at Mount Holyoke. Um, There's kind of a big five college system there. It was Amherst, Mount Holyoke, Smith, Hampshire College, which is on shaky ground. Uh, It may not be a college for much longer. Um, And then UMass, Amherst. So it's far away. I, I can't see it being very easy to orchestrate getting a kid from an hour and a half away to Boston to flee the country. And I also really hate to say it, but Considering that five college presence, especially when two of those five colleges were women's colleges, so you've got, you know, two to three thousand women at both Mount Holyoke and Smith between the ages of, you know, 18 and and 22, that's like a hotbed for handmade recruiting. So I imagine that, you know, it very much mirrors what we see in Boston in terms of probably very, um, uh, just a very powerful area in terms of having handmaids under control, having a lot of commanders there. I mean, clearly if they, you know, shipped, um, Alma's kid out there, there, there's a need for kids. So they're probably up against the lot trying to get a kid out of Amherst is just how I would imagine it based on what I know of that area. And then someone else we see, which was a much welcome, familiar face, even though she was briefly in last episode, is Rita. And um, this, I, I just love this scene. It was such a nice little reunion. And um, we're going to play a little bit of it now because it was just really lovely. I heard what the Marthas are planning. I told them that I want in. I'll score a kid. Whatever. Is this your idea? I'm such a boss now. I'm proud of you. And so, yeah, Rita's going to be in on this. She wants in. She wants to be an active part to get these kids out. And I always, I also really love that little bit where they're just kind of like touch hands briefly in the potatoes. Um, there's just something very, very endearing about that. Then we are venturing up to Canada. We see Serena and Fred. And Fred learns the brutal truth. Oh, poor Fred. He learns that Serena is really the one that ratted him out. You know, and he really accuses her of just saying, oh, it's always been about you. And, you know, Serena comes back with the lame thing. I just wanted to be with my daughter. And I'm like, dude, of like all the reasons you could put this guy away, that's, that's the one you mentioned, which I'm sure it's a driving force. But let's like go over everything. There is the first handmaid they had that he had the affair with that hung herself. There is 
The affair he had with June and his super creepy obsession with her that we have seen basically not relenting itself even after they moved to DC for a while. That was made very clear in the last episode, you know, a couple episodes ago when they had the ceremony, taking away her ability, her rights to read and write leaving her out of anything that had to do with the running of Gilead when she was actually instrumental in in helping create parts of it. I mean, granted, it's an awful thing, but, you know, maybe it would have been a better world if Serena had kind of more involvement in in some of the day-to-day activities. Um, Who knows? But, you know, and then ultimately, and they will just not let up on us seeing her finger, (laughs) In any episode, it's always honed in on whether it's it's bare, whether it's got that little prosthetic on it. I mean, they probably took that away from her at this point. I don't know. I mean, of all the things that she could have said, she just said, I want to be with my daughter. And I just thought it was a missed opportunity for the writers because they could have had her really let him have it. Um, I think we all really want to see Fred just taken down in a major way. And I do think that it is like, it's so insane that he is in this swanky retention center. And so is she like, you know, not that it looks like a five-star hotel, but damn, I've never seen, you know, kind of a prison represented that looks like this before. And I'm not sure if it's a U.S. facility or a Canadian one, but Wow, look at the way in, on fictional TV that the U.S. and Canada treat war criminals and how the U.S. treats the people that they detain at the southern border who are, you know, trying to come in for one reason or another, you know, even if they're seeking asylum. So, I mean, I just think that's a really interesting contrast. And, you know, that's something that, like, Luke even mentions when he goes in to see Fred, uh, and Fred offers him bourbon, you know, like, oh, they're very accommodating. And he's like, uh, yeah, I can totally see that. And, you know, kind of, he's kind of like WTF, like seriously. Um, I don't know. And Fred is just so smug in that scene with Luke, you know, he's just like, oh, I've changed her. Gilead's changed her. And, You know, at least Luke got in a really good punch. I mean, Fred is just such a pussy. Um, I would have loved to see the guard just given him a couple more opportunities, Luke a couple more opportunities to to really pummel him. I'd love to see him in a more uh, uh, typical facility with uh, other prisoners and see how well, uh, well he can fare there. Because I think while he's kind of a mastermind, I I don't really think he has uh, any street skills or any uh, physical skills that will um, that will help him in prison. So we've got this really creepy prayer gathering, which seems to be par for the course in Gilead. Eleanor is waiting outside the door. I guess she just couldn't handle so much of it, and June goes back in with her and. You know, it's it's for, we find out it's for the man that uh, June murdered, Commander Winslow. And, you know, then we hear and this is something that I think we touched on. What happens to women in Gilead if their husbands pass away? So it seems like they can't live alone without having a husband because, you know, they're not deemed, you know, they can't 
they're it's against the law for them to do that level of work to to run a household is is kind of what it seems and it looks like that they're also not fit to raise children on their own you know mrs winslow says that they'll take the children from her you know and that's where eleanor kind of butts in and almost blows the whole plan joseph does a good job covering up for her but you know thinking about this it's it's like it's almost kind of like, okay, you've heard stories kind of in India, in the Hindi religion, there used to be this practice where um, when a husband died that uh, the woman would throw herself on his funeral pyre and, and die with him. And uh, this is something that's called sati, and it's really not done anymore, but I did a little looking around, and the last time it happened was 1987, which is not terribly long ago when you think about it, but it is almost kind of like as a woman in Gilead, you what does that force you to do when you become a widow? Do you become a Martha? Do you like maybe... Uh, do they broker another marriage for you? I mean, I guess that's totally possible with maybe a commander who's been widowed. I mean, you know, theoretically, if if Joseph wanted, I guess he could now, you know, marry this Winslow and protect her children and protect her. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, but it that's the type of thing that I think would have to happen for a commander's wife to continue um to live or or maybe they have women's homes too like I don't know um I mean I guess I guess Rita lives with whatever um family she's with um I don't think that's ever been covered we've never really you know I guess they live at the house in the household so you know maybe these women have to become Martha's who knows but um I don't know, maybe we'll see some more of that um, next season. And there is going to be a fourth season. Um, I did see that um, announced in the past couple of weeks. Kind of a moment I don't know if we had all been waiting for, but man, I'm sure glad we saw it, is Moira meeting Serena Joy for the first time. And I'm going to play the clip because this was, I think, just the most perfect five sentences of writing in uh, this episode. I'm sure that she will be fine with me. Who are you, really? Moira? No. Just because you got some new clothes doesn't make you any different. (laughs) You are still the same woman who held my friend down so your husband could rape her. That's uncalled for. Fuck you. You know, he raped me too. The whorehouse. Treated me like shit. Like I was worthless. Look, I am who I am, and I have sinned plenty, but you, you are the gender traitor. So now we're moving into the story with Eleanor and really what the, the sacrifice is all about is you know we see her kind of slip up in that prayer circle with um, commander winslow's wife where she's talking about oh we could take the children with us and you know it's a good thing they know that everyone knows she's a little off right but then all of a sudden we see her like getting ready to charge out the door like getting ready to go across the street to 
get the little boy that lives there so they can get him out too. And, you know, this is really, I think, a huge slap in the face for Commander Lawrence. This is like as real as it's getting in terms of he created this world. It's starting to spiral out of control. He has to figure out a way to fix it, you know, keep the borders open, keep them from, you know, going to war. And then kind of to top it off, Eleanor's really becoming unstable. June gets really harsh with her at this moment, but calms her down. I mean, June has a really good rapport with Eleanor, um, you know, and it's something that, that Joseph realizes as well. But then, you know, Joseph tells Eleanor to go back upstairs and rest. And um, what happens when she does is she takes a handful of pills in an attempt to commit suicide. And June discovers her when she brings up her tray of, you know, I imagine it would be dinner, uh, just based on the timing and how this happened. And she sees her and at first she's trying to rouse her awake. She's still breathing, trying to arouse her awake. And then something comes over June and I'd love feedback on kind of what you thought here. So what is really going through June's mind here? I don't feel like this was only, I don't feel like June avoided getting help for Eleanor with the sole purpose of reducing the obstacle she caused in terms of the plan to get the children out. I'm sure that had something to do with it, but I also think that, you know, in some ways it's a way to honor Eleanor's wish to die and escape the pain of both her illness and life in Gilead. Um, you know, I think Eleanor said something it was something about, you know, when they left and got out of there, they could start their lives. And I think she was really doubting things could ever go back to the way they were. So June kisses her on the forehead and leaves. And the thing is, you know, we also don't know what she took. Um, it's clear it was a suicide attempt. And, you know, but sometimes people will take a bunch of stuff and it doesn't have the intended effect. It might, you know, knock them out for a while. And, you know, it could be that, that June thought, you know, or just left it to chance, right? Okay. Um, if, if she dies, then this was meant to happen. And if she, if she wakes up, then, then that was meant to happen too. Um, but there's, you know, this shot of June where it looks like she's been awake all night, just waiting for Eleanor to die in the room her room, which is kind of, you know, next door down the hall from theirs. And, um, you know, we see the light progress and then we hear the scream, uh, I believe of Sienna as she goes into check on her and finds, uh, finds Eleanor dead the next morning. It's interesting. They move forward with the morning of Eleanor and the funeral. And right before Joseph and June are talking and you know, the borders are kept open and, and Joseph says, it's hard to argue with a man that's in mourning. And that just kind of really hit at home. Like, I don't think that June is calculating enough to think that the death of Eleanor would actually make Joseph's political life easier in terms of what they wanted to get done. I don't know. This is where I love feedback. It's hard for me to think that she's actually, that June is that calculating. 
that she would have realized the death of Eleanor could have been that politically strategic and helpful to Joseph. Um, that's kind of like the very worst way of thinking of it. And and then you kind of wonder, there are a couple times you're like, does Joseph suspect that something happened? Because he kind of looks at her after she says, you know, I could have checked on her too. It's not just you. And then at the funeral, when everyone's left and and June asks permission from Aunt Lydia to go stand by Joseph, he gives her this really interesting look. He's just looking at her so strangely, and she's looking at him so sadly. Um, and then it ends with her looking up with her, you know, her kind of um, hell hath no fury, bitch eyes, um, demon eyes <laughs> with that black bonnet was really uh, very chilling. So I don't know, maybe maybe June was much more calculated about this than than we thought. Um, I don't know. And... I mean, that's, that's really it for the week. You know, this plan is on track. It looks like it's going to happen. Um, it's, it, you know, next week, I think it's just going to be really fast and furious. Um, most of the episodes have been clocking in around 40, 45 minutes, sometimes 50. I don't know if this one will go a full hour or not, but um, I'm sure it'll be riveting no matter what happens. And then, yeah, um, just a call out to the sisters and Mr. Resisters of the week. I mean, on the show right now, I feel like it's everyone that's involved with this plan to get the kids out, um, you know, and so that's a countless number of people to kind of tick off on a list there. But, you know, it's everyone from Beth to June to Commander Lawrence even. And then I guess, you know, in life, and I'm sure this will be, you know, super controversial of me to say, but... I have to give it to all the candidates and people who are calling out Trump for his, not just his racist rhetoric now, but um, who have basically agreed to say that um, he is a white supremacist. And the people that have said that include Andrew Yang, Beto O'Rourke, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders. Um, these are all people running for the Democratic nomination for president. And then there is also an archbishop, um, Gustavo Garcia Siller, who is in San Antonio, Catholic archbishop, who also called out Trump for racism. He didn't call him a white supremacist, but he called him out in light of everything that happened in El Paso and, and Trump's behavior following. And so I think something that's really important to note with all these people coming out and saying Trump is a white supremacist. What I found most important about these articles is that it is not just people running for office on the other side that feel this way. It's widely believed that people who actually are white supremacists in the United States believe that Donald Trump is one. And I think that is probably what is most chilling of everything because he's being looked at as an example. And, you know, I think it's to the point now where anytime he's given a speech or a script where he condemns, you know, racial hatred, white supremacy, white nationalism, um, that 
it's like no one's believing it on any side. Um, and I think that's something that is really scary. So it's, it's, you know, I think it's, it's good that people are calling it out, but I think that the people that really truly believe it, um, that, um, they're the people that can do the most damage, um, and that, that follow him. And I don't know, it's very frightening as we end, of course, don't let the bastards grind you down. And remember that you're fucking fantastic, as Beth would say. And please send me any feedback that you have uh, in terms of your uh, theories on what's going to happen in the last last episode. And then, of course, I would love post episode, post finale feedback. Um, Axel Foley and I will be getting on to talk about the season finale. And then um, hopefully later on, um, I'm going to have Anne Mercogliano on. She is very involved with the Women's March organization in San Francisco. And I think we're going to do just kind of a a discussion about the whole, the season as a whole in the couple weeks after, after the finale. So thank you so much for listening. And um, here we go. It's finale time. Mm -hmm.